Welcome to Metal Injections, the Squared Circle Pit. Today's special guest, Eric Bischoff. At that, here is your host, Rob Hasbani. What an awesome show I have for you today. I got a big guest, Eric Bischoff, the dude who ran WCW. Thank you for listening to Squared Circle Pit. This is Rob. This is your first time listening to Squared Circle Pit. After you hear this episode, I'd highly recommend checking out some of our archives. We have a ton of great episodes in the vaults, including interviews with Chris Jericho, Kenny Omega, former WWE announcer Justin Roberts, Frank Kazarian, as well as metal musicians like Zach Wilde, Corey Taylor from Slipknot, and Corpse Grinder from Cannibal Corpse. Check out all the archived episodes at metalinjection.net slash squared circle pit or look for us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to play the interview with Eric Bischoff right now. And on the other end of the interview, I want to talk about some of my thoughts from the New Japan weekend, some of my thoughts from Royal Rumble and the Raw that followed. Let's get into the pit. Now entering the squared circle pit, a man who needs no introduction to pro wrestling fans. He was the former executive vice president of WCW, also a a maker of a fine beer. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about Eric Bischoff. Eric, thank you for joining the Squared Circle Pit. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. I want to uh, mention, of course, that Eric uh, is going to be... You're a busy man. Not only were you just on the 25th anniversary of Raw, but you're going to be appearing at the Wyndham Garden in Sterling Heights, Michigan for the inaugural Astronomicon with a bunch of other wrestlers and horror aficionados. More info and tickets are available at astronomicon.com. Now, Eric, this is a metal website. Uh, I was just curious, what music were you listening to uh, when you were when you were growing up? What, what music grabbed your ear? Oh, well, you gosh, so much depends on when. You know, I grew up in Detroit, actually. Mm -hmm. So, and being a product of the, you know, really, the year, I was born in the mid-50s. I was, I was 62 years old. But, you know, the early 60s, um, you know, obviously Motown had a major influence on me. My cousins were all a lot old. You know, I was the oldest in my family. But every weekend, we would go to our cousin's house uh, over around six miles or seven miles in Gratiot. And they were all, you know, 10, 12 years older than us. So, of course, they were they were teenagers at the time, and they were heavily influenced by Motown, which means I was heavily influenced by the Motown sound. And, and uh, you know, Temptation, Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, Gladys Knight, The Pips, you name it. You know, all, everybody you would suspect. As I got older, um, and, I, and I still love that, that era of music. You know, Smokey Robinson to this day just brings back all kinds of great memories. Uh, as does some of the early temptation stuff. Um, but as I got a little bit older and my taste started gravitating more towards uh, rock, um, obviously Bob Seger was high on my list and Mitch Ryder in the Detroit wheels. Coincidentally, um, Joey Goots, who is the, one of the lead, I believe he played lead guitar for Mitch Ryder in the Detroit wheels uh, was my next door neighbor. So, oh, wow. and we, you know, he was a, yeah, he was a little older than I was. Uh, when I say we grew up together, I was probably, when I was like 10 years old, he might have been uh, 14, 15. Um, but uh, early, when, when he started playing for Mitch Ryder, of course, that just, you know, brought me even closer to, to Mitch, Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels. So, you know, I, I've been influenced by a number of people. You know, I, I or, or obviously depending on my age and, and where I was in my life. Uh, I moved away from, from Detroit in about 68, 69. And then the whole kind of hippie thing started happening. And then I was all about Jimi Hendrix uh, and still am for the longest time, which is one of the reasons why I used Voodoo Chow um, as the entrance music for Hulk Hogan and myself in the New World Order because I was so heavily influenced by Jimmy Hart. Or not Jimmy Hart, by Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Hendrix. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, not Jimmy Hart. Not Jimmy Hart. But, <laughs> well, Jimmy Hart had a, had a, a music career himself too, so that wouldn't be <laughs> too far yeah, up in the gentry. Yeah, he probably had his own. You know, keep. I think his. You know, his. his you know, one hit wonder. Uh, 
it was uh, Keep On Dancing, I think. Yeah. Uh, was, was his big hit. So it all depends, like I said, on where I was in my life. And if you look at my, if someone found me, you know, in a, God forbid, in a plane wreck and they found my playlist on my iPhone, they would go through my playlist and they would just think I was some kind of like bipolar schizophrenic kind of dude because <laughs> at, in, in any given moment, I'll be listening to Celtic music. I'll be listening to country music. I'll be flashing back to, you know, Motown. I'll be listening to, you know, rap or hip hop. Um, it's just my taste is so varied. It's kind of hard to describe. Cool. I'm glad you brought up uh, Hendrix. Actually, that was something I wanted to talk about. One thing about the New World Order that was so cool is you know, everyone kind of looked like they were a rock band. They were, you know, like a gang of, of like either like a bike gang or a rock group. And you had the really cool rock music with the with the cool riffs and everything like that. Uh, how how did you was it a, a process to get Jimi Hendrix's music uh, licensed? I know for the uh, main NWO riff, you, you also use like another Hendrix riff, the name of which escapes me. But it was just like, how, how did that work out? licensing wise with the music department i'm curious you know it, it's funny and i'm glad you brought that up but you know so many people assume that i spent a fortune to get those rights because today if you were to try to to license you know any of that music from jimmy hendrix you would pay through the nose for it it would be almost prohibitive or impossible Unless yeah. you were doing a feature film or a really expensive commercial with a really big budget, it, it, it just wouldn't make any sense. But uh, this was, you know, way before <laughs> digital and and all that comes comes with it and all that happened to the music industry as a result of it, uh, file sharing and peer-to-peer kind of thing. So right. I actually negotiated the rights myself with the Hendrix estate. Uh, negotiated with Jimmy's sister, who was in charge of the estate at the time. And I got worldwide rights uh, for Voodoo Child for use in television, pay-per-view, live events, all that. Um, I think it was a two-year deal for a hundred grand. That is as close to a steal as you're going to get <laughs> in, in the music yeah, industry. I, mean, I, like I, said, no, I, I, I couldn't do it today because the world has changed. You know, right. The, the music, the economy of the music industry has changed dramatically, and 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 music licensing rights, you know, that business has exploded in, in, in astronomical ways since you know back in '95 or excuse me '96. So I, I certainly it, it wasn't because I was such a master negotiator. It's just nobody was really pursuing you know uh, archive music that much. There there wasn't a lot of money in in archive music and I was just able to do a little digging and get in touch with the family and, and cut my own deal without a lot of agents and attorneys in the middle of it. I have to think that you uh, exposed a lot of uh, wrestling fans to Hendrix. I'm sure that was the first time a lot of teens, uh, myself included at the time, really uh, got into Hendrix and now I'm a, I'm a huge fan. And uh, what do you think, like when, when, let's talk about Hendrix music in general for a second. I think it's super important to a character. It, complete, it immediately tells the audience what who this character is. Was when, when you were running WCW, did you take how seriously did you take entrance music in terms of the overall package? Uh, very seriously. Very, very seriously. To this day, you know, I still write um, more, more as a hobby, but I, I play with, uh, you know, feature film scripts and and you know, writing and creating different kinds of characters. And, and when I've written, you know, wrestling, I think the last time I wrote anything, you know, for wrestling was probably three or four years ago. Um, I often start, if I'm looking for an idea, I often start with music because music makes me feel and it puts me into a, a vibe or a frame of mind that I need to be in to really see or feel a character in my mind's eye. Uh, for instance, there is a song, uh, and I'm playing with the script right now, and I actually have been for years. When I, when I have downtime or when I hit a creative kind of brick wall, oftentimes I'll sit down and dig up a, a, a feature film script that I've been playing with for, in some cases, four, five, six, eight years. 
and just start playing with it. And what it does is it stimulates my imagination and, and it gets me thinking differently, creatively speaking, than I normally do. And sometimes I need to do that. I do it almost as an exercise. Um, but there's a, a project I'm working on uh, as a hobby called Desert Angel. And essentially, the script is about um, a woman, a young woman in her 30s, uh, whose brother had formerly been in law enforcement, but ended up over in um, Afghanistan and was became a POW, and the government couldn't find him. The military couldn't find him. She knew he was over there. Or she believed he was over there. And she comes from a relatively tough part of town. And outside of Sacramento, where you know motorcycle gangs and clubs, I should say, are, are prevalent. And long story short, without dragging you through the whole movie, our, our heroine in this case, our, my, my main character, uh, goes out and makes contact with uh, the president of a local biker club um, and convinces him and the rest of the club to pack their bikes and head over to Afghanistan and try to find her brother and she goes with it. Um, so that's, that's the premise of, of the movie, but that's that, that idea. And again, I want to emphasize for people that are listening to this or reading it. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's a hobby. It's just something I work on. It's, I don't play golf. You know, I don't watch football on TV and there's a lot of things I don't do, but sometimes I just like to write for the fun of writing. And this is that project. But the idea, the, the, the motivation for that project came from a Stevie Nicks song called Desert Angel. And I loved the song, and I listened to it over and over and over again when the first time I heard it, and still do to this day sometimes. And as I was listening to that song, this movie just kind of started playing in my head. And I hadn't given it any thought. I hadn't, you know... It wasn't a goal of mine to, to, to try to attack a movie like this. It's just this song, as I closed my eyes and I listened to this song, um, it just started, the movie started manifesting in my head. So when, when you talk about, you know, how important is music, you know, there's a new series out on Amazon Prime right now called Goliath. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a Billy Bob Thornton series. Yeah, I've seen trailers I, I, for it. Yeah. I mean, listen, if, if you can, down, you know, go, go to Amazon and watch that show mm-hmm. uh, and check out the opening score to that, to that series. The music tells you how to feel and the mood you should be in before you see the first frame of tape. Right. You, you get a vibe for the characters. You get a vibe for the tone of the series before you really even see the first character. Yeah, and, and and I feel like when it comes to wrestling, music is much the same way. It not only defines the character, but it also sets the tone and the mood and prepares you for what that character's point of view is going to be. That's a great point. Yeah, I agree completely, and I I, I think WCW did an awesome job with having uh, unique entrance themes, and some of which you know were kind of like soft covers. I remember DDP had a Smells Like Teen Spirit uh, kind of like sound-alike song. <laughs> and, but what's well, interesting... You know, everybody, everybody does that because yeah. especially as, you know, the music industry changed and people started smartening up to it. Right. And you, you just go out and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't replicate the kind of deal that I did with the Hendrix estate. Yeah. Um, so you, you, your choice was, you know, to, to basically rip off something else, you know, you change a chord or two or whatever, however many notes you had to change, I think, or bars or whatever it is. I'm not a music guy, but there's a formula that allows you to listen to a song and a really good kind of studio musician could sit down and listen to a song, change what needs to be changed legally and for you know people that aren't really paying close attention, you might not know the difference. No, absolutely. And what I was going to say though was with the GDP thing. I remember reading online like, oh, this is just a rip off of Nirvana "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and that just hearing that, I was like, oh, well, let me hear Nirvana "Smells Like Teen Spirit" because I was a little younger at the time, and uh, and it really just ended getting me into Nirvana, and in a way, like pro wrestling kind of got me 
deeper into music and WCW is a big part of it. I remember you guys had a compilation you put out around 98, 99, WCW Mayhem, the music. And two tracks I remember on there very vividly is you, you guys licensed uh, Metallica's Seek and Destroy, which ended up being Sting's entrance theme for a while, which I thought was such a great entrance for him. Uh, and also you guys uh, licensed Megadeth's Crush Em, which also like tied into a movie that Goldberg was in and that was his theme for a while. Was it kind of the same thing as like with the Hendrix thing where the licensing was a whole different world and it was much easier to get acts of that stature to work with you guys and have their music on TV every week? Well, I think in, in, in the case of Goldberg's and, and Metallica, now I'm not sure about Metallica, Metallica, but Dave Mustaine was interested in doing some stuff with us, and that's how some of that, you know, took place. We did the same thing with Gene Simmons and Kiss, by the way. Yeah, I was gonna, I, I was gonna Simmons. ask about that, but yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, but but it, it, it kind of segues into the same, you know, opportunity as WCW started to get more popular, and we were starting to make a much bigger splash in, you know, the mainstream entertainment community. Um, we went from, gee, no one would really even want to license their music to us for any amount of money because we were wrestling, to, holy smokes, this wrestling thing over on TNT is really powerful. Right. And, oh, my God, there's Jimmy Hendrix. Well, we should be a part of that, too. So we went from not, not being able to get anybody to allow us to use their music, even for money, to people all of a sudden reaching out to us to try to do some you know joint you know, promotional type things in the music area. Dave Mustaine is one of them. Uh, Gene Simmons is another. Um, I ended up going to L.A. and sat down and had a couple uh, drinks with Gene. Gene didn't drink. I did. Um, at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And we ended up doing a deal that basically uh, Gene came in and he, I think he played one or two of our live events. I think it was in Las Vegas. He was part of our show. Uh, we were going to do a joint kind of licensing and merchandising deal together using some of the Sting characters and WCW characters. And we're going to create a line of our own Kiss-inspired WCW characters so that we can merchandise them. Uh, and we had been planning, uh, my intent when I launched that deal was actually to have, this was in 1999, and I, my goal was to have a pay-per-view on New Year's Eve. 1999 and we were going to do it at the uh, Fiesta Bowl in Phoenix mm -hmm. and I was going to stage it so that at midnight the pay-per-view was going to end on a three count because everybody if you remember you may not remember you might be too young but everybody was so concerned about what was going to happen oh with the y2k know, thing yeah right 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 with the y2k and they thought computers were going to crash and this infrastructure was going to collapse and planes were going to fall out of the sky all kinds of crazy nonsense so i thought all right why not take advantage of this and party like it's 1999 so to speak have a pay-per-view and we were going to have uh, kiss playing on one end of the football field while we would have wcw pay-per-view action going on on the other and we'd just kind of alternate we'd open it up with a song then we'd go down to the other end of the uh, field and we'd have a match and at the end of the match we'd go back down and have another song and we'd just ping pong back and forth throughout the night until the final match in the main event was going to end on a three count at exactly midnight so that was the plan but like a lot of plans uh it never it was never executed well i wanted to talk to you about this so the the demon uh, debuted I remember and I remember there was a big kiss performance I believe it was on Nitro where the demon arose and I remember reading at the time and you you hinted at it that the demon was going to be one of a few kiss characters like that there were supposed to be other kiss characters other kiss make like was there going to be a star child character yeah, as well that was, so, that, so what was yeah, it that was, yeah. so that it was would be exactly like a kiss that, faction essentially that you you planned to, to do there yeah it would have been a it would have been a faction of kiss inspired characters and we were going to merchandise them gene simmons was going to own you know a percentage of it we were going to own a percentage of it and we were going to promote it jointly i see yeah and then uh <laughs> things didn't go according to plan i guess uh, i think that was actually when no no i i, 
I got shit canned in September and the pay-per-view never happened and the whole deal fell apart. Right, right. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about uh, a few things like that. Uh, I was curious if, like, when you started the NWO, which was, without question, the hottest angle of the 90s, I remember flipping out as a 13-year-old when Hulk Hogan w walked out and, and all that at Bash at the Beach. Uh, and it was it was really really hot, and then there never was really a, a conclusion to the angle. I think it kind of just tapered off uh, after you left, and it might have been brought back. I think Vince Russo brought it back as like NWO two thousand or whatever. But when you were initially starting the angle, was there a finish line in mind? Was there a goal to how it was going to end? You know there was, but it changed really quickly. I don't even remember what it was because. And again, you know, it's I, so I long ago now. I kind of, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's not. It's not that it was so long ago. It's, mm -hmm. I, I say this often: context is king. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're looking back at something like the NWO, you also have to go back and look at that period of time and what else was going on, not only in wrestling but in in entertainment. And to be really honest about it, you know, when I created that idea. And when it first started coming together, I was pretty excited about it, but I'd be lying and, and, you know, trying too hard to pat myself on the back. If I were to suggest to you that I really knew deep down inside, it was going to be this huge thing. I felt good about it, but I had no idea it was going to blow up the way it blew up. Nobody did. And every week it just kept getting bigger and more and, and more powerful. And it just kept growing in terms of popularity so whatever original plans we may have had for it, you know, quickly went out the window because it just we, we couldn't have anticipated it was going to become as popular as it did. I guess it would be like, you know, again, I'm not a musician, but you could sit down and write a song and, you know, send in a demo and you think, wow, that's a pretty good song. And all of a sudden, you know, you're a multi-platinum <laughs> artist and you had no idea. Right. That a song was going to connect the way it did. And that's kind of like the NWO. We just, we knew it was going to be pretty good, but we had no idea it was going to be as big as it was. So the, the point of the answer to your question is, yeah, we had originally had kind of an ending for it, but we should can that right away and just decided to, to ride that horse as long as we possibly could. Eventually, where it was supposed to go, and this is where, you know, it, the NWO kind of hit a brick wall when I left. Because as the NWO was becoming more popular, Nitro was becoming more popular, Ted Turner called me, I believe it was in July, uh, think of 99 or 98, whatever it was. I get my years mixed up. And basically said, hey, Eric, you know, I want you to do another two hours of prime time for TBS. Now, we were doing our show on TNT in 98 is when the call came in, I'm sure. And everything was rocking and rolling. We're on top of the world. Things are growing great. And all of a sudden now I have to produce an additional two hours of TV on Thursday nights. It may not sound like a big deal to people who don't produce television, but, you know, to be it sounds huge, yeah. of television, especially I'm, live, it right? Was, it had to be live and you had to, everyone had to travel. You had to, it's twice the amount of work, basically, I remember, right? It, it, really, it really was. And we were already kind of maxed out with Nitro. We were already operating at 110% capacity. So to get another two hours on top of that was a real ball buster. And creatively, I knew that to just end up doing the same thing on Thursday that I did on Monday would dilute Monday mm -hmm. and, and weaken our position in the market. So my goal was to create another brand. And eventually, I was going to have the NWO take over Nitro and have WCW take, you know, have, have a home on TBS. And then I would have my own war between WCW and the NWO. That now, was where it was supposed to go. Unfortunately, AOL Time Warner intervened. I got canned, and it just kind of evaporated into thin air. Well, yeah, I remember you guys uh, had that test run, like right before Starcade, I think, in 97, where... The NWO took over Nitro. You put on the NWO signs. You had the whole flashy intro ready to go, and, and the ratings didn't do so well. But uh, uh, but what I remember, what I what I always wondered about that is like if the NWO had its own show, the NWO were the heels, 
and they would be facing the baby faces. But on their show, they would be the baby faces, right? So would would the not, not necessarily how, not, not, necessarily. not necessarily. You know, first of all, the, the NWO, yes, they were kind of sort of heels, but mm-hmm. they got some of the biggest. That was part of the you know one of the biggest challenges, and I think one of the reasons why the whole NWO storyline. So this is very day. I mean, you mentioned the, the, the 25th anniversary of Raw. I'm in New York City at the Barclays Center, you know, watching 15, 18,000 people going nuts over the 25th anniversary of Raw. And all I could see when I looked out was NWO shirts. Angle's 20 years old. Hasn't right. been a part of television in a long, long time, but it's still there because it resonated so strongly with the audience. But the the fact of the matter is, the NWO worked because it wasn't the traditional babyface heel formula. Mm-hmm. The NWO started off as being heels, and when Hogan turned on Randy Savage and all that kind of crap, uh, yeah, they, they started out as heels. But because of the cool factor and the gang factor, you know, that you pointed out as we began this interview, mm-hmm. um, the audience started really reacting to them more positively than they did some of the traditional babyface. yeah i mean they were just too cool that like why wouldn't any like myself included i was like i was totally on board with nwo even though like the the storyline might have portrayed like wcw as like trying to fight back and claim their ground you you were still kind of rooting for the nwo because they were so much so much cooler well and, and again you know going back now it's been you know 20 some odd years, but the the psychology behind my strategy was that the WCW audience, again, context is king here, go back and and recognize that WCW as a company had its roots in the Southeast, very traditional, you know, it was a part, you know, it evolved out of the NWA. Ted Turner bought the NWA out of bankruptcy from the Crockett family. The NWA had been kind of a mainstay in their regional territory. It was the southeast part of the United States. And that's a very traditional uh, wrestling audience. It still is to this day in many respects. So my goal was to kind of take advantage of that traditional wrestling loyalty. And that's why I wanted WCW on TBS, because historically, that's where WCW slash NWA was born and, and lived long before Nitro. That's why I chose NWO to live on TNT as the new kid on the block or the East Coast team, if you will, and put WCW uh, on TBS as the West Coast team and have my own East Side Story or West Side I Story, see. so to speak. So it would that sort the, the idea was almost like what, WWE is doing now with Raw and SmackDown. You would have just kind of branched everyone off into two separate rosters, or would it have been the WCW wrestlers? Yeah, yeah, it would have been that. Like there would be a separate NWO crew and a separate WCW crew. That was the idea going in. Yep. And like with the NWO crew, would there be like infighting with? Was the plan like infighting within the NWO? Like members kind of. uh, Right. It would have just been its own show. Yeah, it would have been its own show. You would, you would, you know, much like if you go back and look at early, you know, look at some of the middle uh, seasons of Sons of Anarchy. You know, originally the gang was tight, the club was tight, they had their own things going on, their own business going on. But when they needed to kind of create more story, more drama, and more depth, they started creating power struggles within the club. It would have been no different with the NWO. Right. Well, uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you uh, uh, for the plan about, if you can think back. Uh, at In 2001, you were planning with Fusion Media to take over WCW and, and, and buy it from Turner. And I remember at the time, uh, WCW was writing off all of their biggest characters, like Goldberg was off TV, Luger and Bagwell, uh, Hogan. All the big stars were kind of being written off. And I remember there was an ad in a WCW magazine right before it got sold for The Big Bang, which was going to be like a re- relaunch pay-per-view that you were planning. 
And I was just curious if the deal went through and you did get control of WCW and the shows weren't canceled off TNT and TBS, you still have that TV going. What was the plan for the Big Bang and the idea for the relaunch? We never really, we never got to the creative side of it. We knew we were going to have an event. We knew we wanted a relaunch that was absolutely necessary. The original intent was to buy WCW, take two or three months off, and kind of create an absence makes the hardcore founder factor, mm -hmm. and relaunch with a completely fresh slate. So we were more... We were more involved in the kind of tactical and strategic planning of that than we were really in the creative. So we hadn't figured out, you know, what the creative side of that was going to be. Mm -hmm. We were really focused on the tactical and strategic side of it. Okay. And, you know, uh, one guy that returned this weekend at the Royal Rumble was Rey Mysterio. And Rey Mysterio, to me, blew my mind when he showed up in WCW in 96 and the cruiserweight division in general is one of the most innovative moments in pro wrestling and i feel like it really doesn't get the credit that it deserves because it essentially inspired this current generation of pro wrestlers and like it kind of uh, improved the work rate across the board in all of pro wrestling uh, whereas today i feel the work rate is miles ahead of then when you first saw these luchadors uh, and you were working on building Nitro and you, you needed to expand the cast, what was your first impression of seeing how fast-paced and innovative guys like Ray and, and Eddie were uh, to where they're still held up to today's standards, some of those matches? Well, the, the Cruiserweight division really didn't start in my mind, at least, or wasn't inspired in my mind um, by the luchadors. Um, they came kind of after the fact. The the catalyst for the cruiserweight division was Eddie, uh, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, and Chris Jericho, um, who I had been watching over in New Japan, uh, particularly Dean and, and Benoit and Eddie, because I was doing a lot of business with New Japan. They were doing a lot of business with New Japan. And I really loved that kind of fast-paced, hard-hitting, very believable style that I was seeing coming out of New Japan at the time. And since I was doing business with New Japan, we had kind of a, a talent sharing agreement. We were doing a lot of things, you know, strategically together throughout the year. They, New Japan had asked me to consider bringing Ed and Eddie and Dean and Chris over to WCW so that between New Japan and WCW, we could basically control their their calendar and control their schedule mm. because what new japan, new japan couldn't put them on the roster full time because of the nature of their scheduling and their business um so they wanted me to absorb some of that and i on the other hand was looking for some fresh talent that brought that japanese influence to nitro so that that's that was the inspiration of of that cruiserweight division and then after I brought Dean and Eddie and, and um, Chris in, and then I, you know, I went out almost immediately, went after Chris Jericho, and started building it to build that division. And that's when you know the Luchador thing started really catching my attention, and I brought them in. So um, that's how it grew. But it really it started with Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, and Eddie Guerrero. Oh, I see. I, I didn't realize that. That's very cool. Okay, and. Uh, just to wind things, wind things down here, uh, you've uh, once WCW ended, you, your production uh, company, Bishop Hervey Productions, produced a bunch of shows. You've gotten a bunch of shows on TV with Scott Bayo, Billy Ray Cyrus. And one thing I read about modern wrestling promotions, all of these upstarts now, obviously no one's going to compete with WWE uh, that quickly, but there's... You know, it seems to be the the one the only way to really be a successful company, other if you want to branch out of just being an indie, is to get onto television, and that seems to be the one thing that no wrestling promotion other than WWE can really successfully do. New Japan is on Access; it's a small station. Uh, Impact is on Pop now. Uh, how like with? the amount of ratings that wrestling brings and the relatively low 
cost of production compared to like a scripted show. Why why do you think or, or what why have you heard perhaps that these networks are kind of shy to get pro wrestling on their channels? Um well couple things. First of all, you know, let's look at pop TV ratings for TNA, whatever it's called now, Impact. Impact, yeah. They'll do maybe somewhere between 250,000 viewers and 310,000 viewers on a weekly episode. Yep. I get more people than that on my podcast. <laughs> uh, so that's... So when you say, when you, you know, you preface your question by saying, you know, wrestling gets relatively good ratings, that's not really true. Well, but, but if you look at Pop's no, average, no, though. No, 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 no. <laughs> don't get to interrupt me. I'm sorry. Okay. So you, just, you finish your statement. Absolutely. I apologize. <laughs> if, if, you, if you look at TNA or Impact, 300,000 viewers has absolutely no interest in, or is completely uninteresting to any national advertiser on the planet. Mm -hmm. Just doesn't exist. And it doesn't matter how it rates relative to pop, you know, the rest of the pop TV schedule. If you can't get an advertiser to go, okay, I'll buy a 30 second spot inside of impact wrestling. It has no value. And as a matter of fact, Impact doesn't get one nickel from Pop TV. They give the show away. It costs them money to produce it, and they give it to Pop TV. I can tell you with fair certainty that if you called over to Pop TV and you told them you wanted to buy a national commercial inside of Impact, you could probably get it for a bucket of cold chicken and six-pack of money. I think I actually read in the Observer it's like 150 bucks or something like that, or $300, something. Yeah, okay, it's a little more expensive than a bucket of cold chicken. <laughs> but it, it has no value. Yeah. So so if, if, if TNA or Impact, which is one of only, what, two shows outside of WWE on the air right now, maybe mm -hmm. three, has absolutely no value and no interest to advertisers. Why would any network want a wrestling show? I see. Uh, that I, I completely hear you. So let, let me rephrase the question then. What would a wrestling company need to do, and I, I, excluding Impact, because I feel that's a very damaged brand, what would a wrestling company have to do to get a major cable network uh, to be interested in having their product on their channel outside of WWE, of course. I think you would have to come to a network with a concept, creatively speaking, that was so unique and evolved and different than what the WWE currently is that you could get people to actually sit through a meeting and listen to your pitch. Because the network executive, believe me, I'm in the business of pitching television shows, so I'm not kind of making this up. Yeah, that's why I, I'm asking. I live, yeah. I, I, I live and breathe and die by this stuff every day. You know, television network executives, cable or otherwise, have been pitched every version of a wrestling show you can possibly think of. And for all intents and purposes, I don't, I mean, I could probably get a meeting with somebody, but they would probably only take the meeting out of courtesy because they knew me. Um, if they didn't really know me personally, even with my background, I don't think I could get a meeting in Hollywood to pitch a show. I don't think you could get a network executive to carve out 20 minutes of their day to even listen to anybody about it because they've heard it all. And there are, you know, they've seen people try it and everybody except for WCW, excuse me, except for WWE has failed. So the, the, the appetite to, you know, for a network to risk all of that primetime real estate an extremely valuable real estate on a television product that historically has failed everywhere it's been attempted outside of WWE. Um, and, and even if one could possibly get a little bit of traction, advertisers don't want to be in it. So, you know, you'd have to come in with something that was really innovative, 
something that you could you could convince an executive that was different enough from WWE that the audience might sample it. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, you'd have to be able to prove to them that you had the financial resources to take some of the risk or the majority of the risk with them because I don't think you could find a network that would financially be able to or be willing to be at risk for the kind of money that it would take. And lastly, whoever your investor was would have to be an investor with a lot of patience because it would take five to ten years to really build that brand up enough to be able to compete, even remotely compete. When I say compete, I don't mean defeat. I mean to be able to stand up to WWE's ratings. If WWE's getting a uh, if WWE is doing 3 million viewers on a, on a Monday night, if any other property out there was able to do 800,000 or a million, that would be considered a, a big win. Right. Um, but that would take a long time. Yeah. I mean, impact was there for, for a little while uh, when it was happening on spike. And there was, I, I feel like there was a moment for impact to be that company that you're, you're speaking of, but it just didn't work out for them, whether it was just, I don't know, miscalculation of finances or or whatever Vince Russo ended up doing to get them off spike. I don't know. Yeah, there was a there was a series of missed opportunities there over a period of time. And um, the biggest one, you know, I mean, there was a couple. It was, it was a misjudgment, you know, poor judgment business wise, missed opportunity which is also poor judgment business-wise. Mm-hmm. But um, there was a moment in time, you know, when when TNA went on the road uh, for Impact. And, you know, when we were doing, you know, relatively big numbers, a million-plus, you know, viewers, you know, over a two-hour period. And there was a moment in time when, you know, Viacom was interested in owning a part of impact oh really and yeah when they bought bellator right because they they want to have right yeah yeah they want they want to own the the brands that they have on on their channels so they don't have to renegotiate the contracts is that right 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 and and there was a there was a moment in time and i was a big advocate to make that move and to you know let let spike or viacom own half the company because that way you're assured you're going to be on television. You know what I mean? It, it's a guaranteed television platform at that point. And I advocated that strongly. And, you know, the powers to be and, you know, the brain trust in Dallas, Texas, you know, they were too greedy and didn't want to give up any control. They wanted to stay in control and felt like they would be giving that control up uh, if they were to, you know, partner up with someone like Viacom. So they made the, you know, wise decision to you know employ a jail food mentality and keep 100 percent control of a property that is no longer in existence yeah i think that in retrospect was not (laughs) the right call but here we are (laughs) eric i want to thank you so much for taking time i'm sure you're a busy guy this was this was an excellent conversation i really enjoyed talking especially these last few minutes about uh the the wrestling business and i want to say i think it's kind of crazy while you're while we're talking about how you know tv is not really interested in pro wrestling it seems like there's this whole new uh audience that's formed for pro wrestling or, or kind of pro wrestling nostalgia i should say uh with podcasting uh it seems there's all of these podcasts uh bruce pritchard's podcast something to wrestle with is doing huge numbers and you have a podcast as well Bischoff on wrestling did you ever think when you left the the pro wrestling industry that in fact it would pull you back in to sit there and like try to remember all these things from 20 years ago because of what a what a huge budding industry podcasting is yeah I'm going to close this up with that because I've got another call I'm going to jump on but yeah. uh, my, first of all my podcast is on hiatus mm-hmm. uh, for a couple more weeks but yeah, there's a you know a, a proliferation of you know pot wrestling podcasts out there. Bruce Pritchard's being the most successful, but you know I think what, one of the things that we're also seeing is that I mean look at New Japan Pro Wrestling. You know a lot of the success they're having is not necessarily from you know Access TV as much as it is from digital streaming. 
right. and the variety of streaming platforms out there right now. There's a great promotion down in Austin, Texas called Russell Circus, and they produce their shows and stream them live on Twitch TV. Um, House of Hardcore, Tommy Dreamer's company, same thing, produces his live events, you know, you know, streams them live on you know Twitch TV. So there's just a lot of streaming. You know, Fight TV's got an app now where people can watch independent wrestling on Fight TV. So while television, traditional television, traditional cable television may be hard, if not impossible, for all the reasons we discussed to get on, there are other opportunities now uh, for independent promoters and, 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 and the talent with them uh, to get a ton of exposure, you know, on digital platforms. So anyway, I got to run, man. Let's remind the fans to stop by, you know, Astronomicon. On yep. the 10th and 11th, Sterling Heights, I'm going to be there. Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, uh, a whole bunch of other guys are going to be there. And, and some other great horror and comic book characters you're going to want to meet. So should be fun. I get to come back to Detroit for the first time in many, 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 many years. So I'm looking forward to that. And i got to run. All right. Well, I hope you blast some Motown while you're there. Have a good one, Eric. Thank you so much for your All time. I could have talked to Eric for at least another hour, but unfortunately he had to go. But huge thanks to him and the folks at Astronomicon for making that happen. That was very, very cool to talk to Eric. And this was a big week in professional wrestling. Uh, last weekend was huge. Uh, New Japan had two big shows with the New Beginning. WWE had NXT and the Royal Rumble. It's hard to decide what the coolest moment, but the moment where I giggled like a schoolgirl the most was definitely New Japan's New Beginning. When Kota Ibushi and Kenny Omega finally, finally embraced and reunited the Golden Lovers after it seemed like Kenny might have been kicked out of the Bullet Club. But I don't know if you guys watch the Being the Elite YouTube show. That's the Young Bucks YouTube show. They actually had a lot of storyline progression with that specific storyline showing what was happening before the event and what happened after the event. And there was a huge, huge cliffhanger on Being the Elite where it, the question is now, where does the Young Bucks allegiance lie? Do they stay with the Bullet Club or do they stay with Kenny Omega? So that's going to be a really, really interesting storyline. And honestly, this was this is the best storyline in professional wrestling right now, beyond the fact that it requires you to have a, a decent enough knowledge of all the characters. It's been going on now for a few years, I would say, since Kenny re-debuted in New Japan. And when Kenny walked out on that match that Ibushi was having with AJ Styles and cost him the match, that was where they were planting the seeds. Ibushi then left. He came back. They've been kind of avoiding each other, but teasing a match. And I really thought where they were headed was going to be a match against each other. Never in my wildest dreams did I assume they would reunite the tag team. But I think that is so cool. And the one thing about them being on the same side as the Young Bucks is I almost feel like it would make more sense for them to be opposing the Young Bucks because think of how cool those matches would be. Uh, and ultimately, I hope it does eventually lead to a Kenny versus Ibushi singles match. That would be unreal. So that's New Japan. As for WWE, NXT TakeOver was incredible. Continued their streak of just really, really awesome shows. Uh, the Johnny Gargano-Andrade Cien Almas match was just an unbelievable Super well-worked match. Johnny Gargano is awesome. And I think that Andrade Almas is really coming into his own and finding his groove in WWE. I first really, really started picking up on it uh, at the SummerSlam NXT TakeOver because I was there live. And I was watching Gargano and Andrade wrestle each other. And I'm a Gargano fan. But as I was watching the match, I just found myself more and more drawn to rooting for Andrade and wanting to see him succeed and he's really kicked ass these last six months and deserves a spot as the world champion it was cool to see him in the Royal Rumble interacting with a bunch of wrestlers I kind of wish that he was eliminated by Adam Cole Bebe instead of Randy Orton because at least it would have set up some sort of storyline but who knows where they're going with that well I guess we'll see on NXT TV as for the Royal Rumble I thought it was the best Rumble in ages it was, it was great. I thought the men's rumble was the most exciting rumble that I, I remember in like at least five years or something like that. Like in the last few years, it's, it's been the best of the last few years for sure. The one complaint that I have is I thought that the pacing of the show was completely off. 
I understand why they put the Women's Rumble last. Obviously, Ronda Rousey's coming in. That's super cool. I'm super excited to see who she's wrestling and what her whole deal is. I thought it was a great moment. But I think by putting the Men's Rumble in the middle of the show, smack in the middle of the show, it completely killed the crowd. And the thing is, by putting the Men's Rumble first, it you innately would have to compare the Women's Rumble to the Men's Rumble. And... I love the women. I'm a big supporter of women's wrestling and women having equal time and all that. But the first 30 minutes of the women's rumble, objectively, were nowhere near as exciting as the first 30 minutes of the men's rumble. I'm not saying because they're women, because they're men. Just the work rate wasn't there. It was a little sloppier. And I thought the crowd was dead because, again, they they had such an exciting time with the men's rumble. I feel like if you switch the position of those two rumbles, not only would it have kept the crowd alive much longer and kept them more into the women's rumble, because I feel like the crowd didn't really wake up until maybe like number 25, 26, once they were really winding down with the rumble, that's when the crowd started waking up and then the Rousey thing was so cool. And I don't think the Rousey thing would have been uh, any less cool if it happened in the middle of the show. It didn't need to end on round Rousey. It could have been in the middle of the show and it could have ended on Nakamura winning, which would have been a huge pop because everyone just assumed that Reigns was going to win, but Nakamura won. Either way, I mean, it's not the end of the world. Both matches were really fun. I will say in terms of the cameos, the women's match was, was far more exciting. It was so great to see some of the old school women like Molly Holly, Trish Stratus, that moment that Trish Stratus and Mickey James had was just so cool. And I was I was very excited about that. And they got their little shining moment and seeing Lita back there was awesome until she almost killed herself with that moonsault. But I can only imagine how excited that Sasha Banks and Becky Lynch were just to be in the ring with Lita and all those other great legendary women. All right, well, I think that wraps up my opinions of this week in wrestling I want to thank you as always for tuning in and please make sure to check out some previous episodes we have a lot of cool stuff and you can always check us out on the social media facebook.com slash squared circle pit twitter.com slash squared circle pit no e in the circle and i'm rob injection on all forms of social media i'll be back in a few weeks with another cool guest so stick around 